This morning we turn in God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at God's coming to Adam and Eve and the questions that He asks them and their response, how they were making excuses for their sin. We acknowledge, as we've just sung, my heart is to have none before the Lord that we're to seek after, to thirst after His rich grace. That is what we are pleading to the Lord for. For it is so easy for us to act as Adam and Eve did here in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, turning from the Lord and seeking to hide from Him. We noted last week that the fall of man came from believing a lie, and since then, we're tempted to believe that we can create uh, paradise by following our own desires, making our own garden of Eden, as it were. And this is not so. Lies will not stand. The only thing that endures, the only thing that will endure is the truth. And paradise will be restored when God comes in His Son to establish the new heavens and the new earth. The lie will be destroyed and truth will be established forever. While we wait for that day, God tells us that He is for us. That is something that we need to keep before ourselves. The, the world wants to make excuses for why they won't believe in God. They say He's so mean, He's so, he's so judgmental, He's so critical. And yet, even here, when man sins, we, we note this morning is that God comes, not in fiery judgment, but He comes graciously to our first parents. We see something very different from that, from that caricature that people often paint of God. He comes and seeks out our first parents. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning, Genesis chapter 3. We read that the eyes of them, both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. And then we read God's word, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the Word of God. To people of God, there's an admission of guilt in this passage at the outset, but it is set in some sort of, a, of a, an excuse-making. Well, I did eat, I ate, I ate, very clearly, confession of guilt, but, well, there's a reason for that, and it wasn't my fault. Children, when you sin and you know what, that what you've done is wrong, what do you do? How does it make you feel? You might try to hide or make excuses for what you've done. When Adam and Eve sinned, that's what they did. They hid and they 
made excuses. I can remember a time, one time as a child, I, I knew I had done something wrong, and I wasn't really ready to confess. In fact, I still was quite angry, and I went and hid under my bed, thinking that perhaps I would ex- escape any consequence for my sin. And I remember my father coming into the room, and he didn't look under the bed, though I'm quite certain he knew I was there. He came in, and he didn't come in shouting. He came in, and I could see his feet from my position under the bed, and and I wasn't ready to come out and, and confess what I had done. And all he said was, if you can hear me, dinner's ready. I didn't really think about it at the time, but I did know this. I didn't deserve dinner. I deserved something else. And yet here was an invitation to come to a meal. There's something very astounding about this passage. When Adam and Eve sinned against God... He didn't come in fiery judgment. He could have. Remember what he said. In the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. That was a very clear statement. There was nothing confusing about that. It was very clear. The pronouncement for the consequence of sin was there. But there was also a gracious warning in that word. If you choose to disobey me, it will mean death for you. Don't go that way. The world wants to paint this as, well, that can't possibly be good. That's simply a limitation. That's simply something that is is, uh, keeping us from something when in fact God is saying, yes, I'm keeping you from death. I'm keeping you from evil. Remember, we saw last week, there was something that Eve couldn't see. It was the evil world. It was the evil of the devil. And that was God's blessing to her, that she didn't see that, that Adam didn't see that. Well, they died in that day spiritually, and that spiritual deadness has been passed on to us. But God did not destroy them, and He Instead, came to speak to them, and He comes to speak to you and me. He comes often with a series of questions. God often comes with a series of questions before He gives His judgment. I don't know if you've noticed that in the Scripture. You can see that throughout the Scriptures if you were to look. He he often is coming with questions. He comes with questions to Adam and Eve here this morning. He doesn't ask questions to gain some knowledge that He doesn't have. He has all knowledge. He asks questions, often probing to see if we understand that whatever he does is according to justice. God cannot act unjustly. He will not act unjustly. It is against his very nature. So when he comes, he comes. And what he does, he does in justice. He's always just. He cannot act unjustly. When he begins to ask questions of Adam and Eve, we learn that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we often see that when we think of other people say, boy, he is really patient with them. 
And not so very often do we think, oh, he's so patient with me. But God is patient. He is gracious. He is compassionate. That doesn't mean he will not punish the guilty. He does. But he also extends his grace. I want to look at a series of, the series of questions that the Lord asks of Adam and Eve this morning as we learn of the grace of God and how we should respond. The first question the Lord asked when he came down was, Adam, where are you? Now he knew where Adam was. He knows where we are, just as my father knew where I was. Yet he could have simply said, where are you? Instead he said, I don't know if you can hear me, but dinner's ready. I don't know if you can hear me, but I want to talk to you. It is through His Word and by His Spirit, God often asks, where are you? And today He asks us, He asks you, where are you in relation to Him? He wants us to examine our hearts. When someone comes next to you and corrects you and says, I don't think you should do that, it's, it's, and it's coming from one who is a brother or sister in the Lord. It's, it's an examination of the heart. We're called to, to encourage each other. We're called to, 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 to bring each other along as we're walking together on this road toward God's paradise. Far too often what I hear, and I've heard it from people here, you say something, you try to correct someone, and, and you say, you shouldn't be doing that, and they say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to to tell me how I should act or to respond in this situation? And yet when there is a desire to correct a behavior that needs to be corrected, we should respond, oh, thank you. Thank you. And come out from hiding, come out from that rebellious place and respond rightly. Submitting to God. Children, when your parents correct you, you are to submit to them. God corrects us. We are to submit to Him. We are under authority. You say, well, some will say, well, that's all fine and good. But when I see the God of the Old Testament, all He's doing is judging. He's judging here. He's judging there. Nations are being condemned. He's calling Israel to destroy the nations. was very interesting as we look at that. We won't look at all of those examples, but you know of them. And the, the unbelievers will say, I can't believe in a God like that. And what we need to remind them of is that God is showing what sin justly deserves. God never acts unjustly when He punishes sin. It is what sin justly deserves. And He warns us that if we do not turn to Him... We shall face judgment. Studying the Old Testament, then, is not a waste of time. It's not something that we should tear out of our Bibles. In fact, as we study the Old Testament, we learn that God is sovereign over the nations, that all will come to Him, that all will have to give account to Him. Those who refuse to repent of sin and turn to Him for salvation will be judged. Then we remind ourselves and those around us. Today is the day of salvation. Therefore, repent and believe, for judgment will come and will fall. Sin must not be ignored. It must be addressed, or little sinners will become big sinners. 
Parents, we need to show repentance and to call our children to repentance. People of God, we need to show repentance and we need to call one another to repentance. Teaching point here is what keeps sinners from God is not any injustice in him. They often say, well, I wouldn't believe in a God like that. That's, he's, he's acting unjustly. Well, it's not injustice that keeps people from God, for God is and can only be just. What keeps them from God is pride and rebellion and a refusal to acknowledge their sin, to repent of it. Note here that God does not come to Adam and Eve saying, you know what you've got coming. He instead asks, where are you? Do you know what's in your heart? Opportunity for confession. Opportunity to not be hardened in sin, but to come out from hiding and to confess. And fathers, when you must discipline your children, you're to, there's a place to call them to repent. Give them opportunity to do so. At times this happens even when they're doing what you tell them to. We often hear that statement, Delayed obedience is disobedience. I'll I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. An hour passes. Half a day passes. A day passes. I'll do it. I said I was going to do it. Yeah, but I told you to do it now. And the attitude is, well, I'll get to it when I get to it. That's not obedience. We often let it pass for obedience, but it's not obedience. Or we do it and we're grumbling and complaining. Vacuum this floor. All I'm ever doing is vacuuming. Taking out the garbage. All I ever do around here is work. I don't know. I never don't need to get a job. I already have one. I just. But I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Yeah. How are you doing it? Is that obedience? It's not, is it? We need to lead ourselves and our children to examine our hearts. How are we obeying if we are obeying? And if we're not obeying, if we're delaying, why are we not doing it when we're told to do it? Where are you in your relationship to God? When God speaks, do you respond readily, cheerfully? Or do you respond, I'll get around to it when I get around to it, and then I'll do it, but I won't do it happily. The Lord came to Adam asking, where are you? And Adam's answer was, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Adam had no excuse for his sin. He hid from God rather than going to him. Well, then the Lord asks a second question or a pair of questions. Secondly, the second question, verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In this pair of questions, God, we should hear God asking, do you understand your need? Nakedness in the Bible is a, is a picture of, of weakness. It's a picture of need. It's a picture of humiliation, of, of being humble before the Lord. 
Recognizing one's need. Not just saying, well, yeah, I add a little bit of that to my own doing and I'm, I'm pretty good. No, without God, we will perish. I say that because our culture today, this is, this is part of the foundation series. You say, well, this is pretty foundational. Yes, it is. And we need to hear it because our culture says, well, no, you can do what you want, when you want, how you want. You can come and go as you please. God was asking Adam and Eve, he's asking us this morning if we understand our need. Fathers and mothers, when you parent, your children must learn of their need. They must learn of their need. The goal is not merely to produce good behavior, to produce behavior that will uh, avoid you from being embarrassed by what they say or do. But controlling, uh, controlling behavior is not the first thing they need to learn, though they need to learn that, to, to learn their need for God. The source of forgiveness, the one who gives new life. Your children need to see their sin and their need to confess and repent of it, to look to God to save them. We need to model that for them. That means we need to do that too. We need to show them that we have a need. Not just say, well, just do like me. Just, just follow my example uh, and, and you'll be fine. Well, yes, if that example is we're confessing our sin, looking to Christ and trusting in Him for completely for our salvation. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, they were making a decision. We don't need God to know how to live. We can live without Him. It's interesting how that often plays out. I see it far too often today. You'll see someone in the store with their children, and the children are not getting what they want, so they scream and they throw a tantrum, and there's not uh, any sort of, of resistance to them. Instead, it's like, oh, what, what do you want? Just be quiet. What do you want? Yeah, okay, grab that and take it off the shelf and dump it in the cart. And, and, and they do things because they don't want to be embarrassed by their behavior. Instead of looking at the heart and saying, no, I said no, and that means, well, No. And they don't learn, we don't learn when, when we're not corrected, we don't learn of our need for God. We think, well, we're better than those people. We have a half full cart, their heart cart is all the way full, so we must be doing a better job. But what we need to see is that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We need God. To forgive us. We need God to send His Spirit that we might confess faith in Christ, that we might follow His Word, that we might be directed by His Word. The teaching point here, tenors, uh, sinners don't reject God because of His commandments are burdensome. They oftentimes say, man, what a killjoy. There's no fun in that. But the Scriptures say just the opposite. These commandments are not burdensome. They are light and they are life. Satan tells us, and we tell ourselves, oh, commandments, oh, those are restrictive. They're keeping us from things. And God says, yes, from destruction, from the path of wickedness. 
Sinners don't reject God because His commandments are burdensome. Sinners reject God because they do not love Him and refuse to acknowledge their need for Him. It's interesting here. God comes to Adam and asks him, Who told you that you were naked? Well, it wasn't Satan, was it? Satan was the one who said, Well, if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open. You'll know good and evil. You'll have something extra that you didn't have before that will help you to to be fulfilled when in actuality, it would lead them to be cut off from the one who would protect them. Satan does not want us to know that we are naked and needy. He wants us to follow our own way and be exposed unto judgment. It's God's Word which speaks the truth. It's why we need to come here and to hear God's Word. It's God's commands alone which will convict of sin and tell us of God's love in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. There are many today who are adding commands or, or adding certain positions that you must take, and they're saying, well, the only way you can find any peace of conscience is if you follow all of these rules that we're giving you. It's, it, it becomes a new religion. And we're convinced that it's, well, if I do enough, if I'm in the right camp, if I'm in the right place saying the right things at the right time, then I can save myself. Or I can find peace of conscience that way. That's the lie of the devil. In fact, the only way that we can find peace and the peace that we need between us and God is in His Word, to be finding it there. Satan does not want us to open God's Word. Churches that fail to preach Christ and Him crucified, pastors who fail to preach Christ and Him crucified, are failing the members of that church. The gospel becomes something else. The gospel becomes a works righteousness message when we are to recognize that we are naked and we have need to be covered. We are needy. Well, the third question he asks, verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? A question of understanding. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity, any lack of conformity to God's law. It is a change of allegiance from God to ourselves. It is not merely another way to live. It is not an alternative lifestyle. That's a way of of changing the language so that it it sounds okay. There is one reality, God's reality. There is one way, His way. To reject Him is to pretend that the lie can replace the truth. Sin is no small thing. Sins are flags of allegiance planted in the soil of our hearts. We see so many flags flying today with allegiance, with a statement, a testimony about what we believe in. And it is very revealing. Where are our allegiances? Where are our energies placed? Think of sins as flags of allegiance planted in the soil of our hearts. What should be planted there is the gospel. Jesus talks about that in Luke chapter 8 and in other, the other gospels as well. Luke chapter 8, the parable of the soils. And he says that it is the gospel that needs to be sown. And he says that different hearts will receive it differently. He says that there are the seed falls on the path. There he's talking about bad soil, a, a hardened soil. 
a hard or indifferent heart. This is, speaks of those who hear the Gospel over and over and over again and it doesn't penetrate, it doesn't say anything to them. And it is the devil who delights in that. J.C. Ryle put, says this about that type of heart and that type of work of the devil. Nowhere does the devil labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women being saved than where the Gospel is preached. You're not here just uh, dealing with the challenges that you have in yourself. The devil wants you not to listen. He wants you to reject what is being said. He goes on, from the devil come wandering thoughts and roving imaginations, sleepy eyes and fidgety nerves, weary eyes and distracted attention. In all these things, Satan has a great hand. People wonder where they come from and marvel how it is that they find sermons so dull and remember them so badly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil. Then it's also those words that come and then they are quickly picked up. That second heart is a shallow and superficial heart where the seed comes and it only lasts for a time. When troubles come, It disappears. J.C. Ryle writes, it is quite possible to feel great pleasure or deep alarm under the preaching of the gospel and yet to be utterly destitute of the grace of God. The tears of some hearers of sermons and the extravagant delight of others are no certain marks of conversion. We may be warm admirers of favorite preachers and yet remain nothing better than stony ground hearers. Nothing should content us but a deep, humbling, self-mortifying work of the Holy Spirit and a heart union with Christ. You say, well, I can't, I can't do that. That's right. That's right. For that, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need God. We need to go to Him every day for that fight. And then that third, the seed fell among thorns. When the thorns grew up, it choked them out. It says this, this is a preoccupied and distracted heart. What other things are taking of our time? Jesus mentions three weeds that choke off spiritual growth. Phil Riken writes in his commentary, one is the weed of trouble. Sometimes the cares of life are so distracting that we forget to nurture the life of the soul. We spend so much time worrying about our health or a family conflict or a work situation that we fail to give God the service He requires. He says that there are not only trouble, but there are also riches and pleasures. It's not just our toils and cares that stunt our growth, but also our riches and pleasures. Taking a vacation, buying a car, remodeling our home. These things are all good in themselves, but they easily distract us from the kind of sacrificial obedience that helps us to grow in Christ. Then Ryle writes, the things of this life form one of the greatest dangers which beset a Christian's path. The money, the pleasures, the daily business of the world are so many traps to catch souls. Thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become, when followed to excess, little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. Open sin is not the only thing that ruins souls. In the midst of our families and in the pursuit of our lawful callings, we have need to be on our guard Except we watch and pray, these temporal things may rob us and smother every sermon we hear 
we may live and die thorny ground hearers. Very challenging, convicting. What is this that you have done? How are you? Do you know what has happened to you? Do you know how great your need is? Note the reactions to God's words that Adam and Eve give. Adam has opportunity to confess. And instead of confessing, he says this, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Eve has the opportunity as well when God comes to her and her response is, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam says, I sinned because of the woman you gave me. Lord, it's your fault. Eve says, I ate because of the serpent. Well, both of these really are seeking to blame God for sin. Adam says, you gave me this woman. Eve says, the serpent whom you allowed in the garden, it was your fault that the serpent is here. That's the reason I sinned. I was deceived. That is not the heart which is made new by God. Rather, in sin, we come and we confess and we find in the Lord Jesus Christ complete healing. For God comes and He he comes to lead us to that place. It's hard at times to discern all that's going on in our hearts. Why we do what we do. Why we choose what we choose. And it, it seems so complicated And it is. It's hard for us to examine our hearts, but God's Word is very clear. And His call is very clear. Come to Me that you might be saved. Come to Me that you might know the way to eternal life. When we're asked, what have you done? It comes down to this. We've chosen for ourselves over God. We cannot blame God for sin. He cannot deceive. He cannot tempt. We read in James chapter 1, What sin displays is our desires, what we desire most. When tempted, we must ask ourselves, what has God said and what do I desire? And we are to desire God's Word more than Satan's deceptions, more than our own deceptions. We are to put sin to death in our hearts and obey Him. That is, children obeying parents, Christians obeying the Word. Together we encourage each other to walk in the truth, in the way that we live together. Oh, this scene here, this scene is a scene of God's amazing grace. The way that He comes and speaks to them and to us, calling us to consider where we are, to consider our need to reflect upon what we've done. As grace continues to this day, He comes to you and to me to reveal our sin and the way of salvation. He says, I have offered a way for you to be delivered. The Lord Jesus Christ, and I've given my spirit that your desires might be rightly directed, that your priorities might be for me. Zealous for good works. That I might be the focus of your attention and that others might be blessed by your actions, by your words. All who turn to God do not need to hide from God, but glory in the relationship they have with Him and in His promise of the coming restoration of that perfect fellowship with Him. 
For that is what is coming. When Christ comes again, He will call His own to be with Him forever in peace, knowing a perfect love. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the way You speak to us so patiently, so perseveringly. You act justly. Your justice was carried out upon our sin and Your Son that we who believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. What a, what a blessing that we have. May we recognize what a freedom that we now have in Christ. Freedom to live as You have created us to live. To love as You have created us to love. To serve as You have created us to serve. Receive our thanks and our praise and guide us by Your Word and Your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.